Uh, like I said, got a lot to do. So let's get to work, right? So um, I, I came across a, a, an interesting quote uh, this past week. Now, I don't remember the, the, the context of the quote. I really don't what it was talked about or, or where I heard it. I just remember as I was digging into the text here, the, the quote po- kind of popped back into my mind again. And, and the quote was this. Um, the, the quote was, a person uh, is only a couple drinks away from completely destroying their lives. I just found that interesting. A person is only a couple drinks away from completely destroying their lives. Now, this isn't a, a text on, on drunkenness. That's not the point of me remembering that quote or bringing it up, but it made me think this. Um, can we really, truly trust ourselves? That's what it made me think of. Can we really, truly trust ourselves? Uh, for the past six weeks or so in, in our country, we've been completely captivated by this, this trial of Alex Murdoch in, in South Carolina. Uh, the entire trial was streamed uh, live for anyone to watch, and millions of people tuned in every single day. Now, here you had a, a guy, not a, a good guy at all, but was facing this intense financial pressure and all sorts of cover-ups that were starting to be exposed and brought into the light. And, 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 and in this pressure, he, he ends up committing this horrific act of, of violence against his wife and his son. And and, and people tuned in to watch this trial and watch him be convicted and sentenced to, to life in, in prison. And there's got to be kind of part of us that begins to think when we, when we hear stories like that and we, we observe and we witness things like that, like, man, how could a husband do that to his wife? How could a father do that to his son? And, and we hear stories like this often. Our, our news headlines are, are filled with these types of stories, stories of an embezzlement, Stories of corruption, of infidelity, of abuse, and so on and so on. And, and I don't know where your mind necessarily goes, but sometimes my mind goes to what happened in this person's life, right? What, what, what circumstances were driving them to all of a sudden make these, these decisions, which just brought devastation and harm to their life and to so many other, other lives. And and then I have to sit back and start pondering, like, man, okay, my circumstances were different. Is this in me? Right? If I was facing specific pressures and stresses in my life, am I capable of doing these types of things, too, that we hear about? Now, don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that circumstances cause us to sin. This is not a dev, the devil made me do it, right? But, but circumstances often reveal the depravity of the human heart. So, so for example, I've... I've I've said this before, that, that before I had children, um, I used to brag and actually literally boast that, that one of my strongest character qualities is I'm a patient person. Used to, I, honestly, I'm not even trying to get, get, get a laugh. I, I honestly used to say, that's probably my strength. I'm probably, a, I'm a patient person. And then God gives me two children to reveal, no, you're not, right? And, and here's what happened. My kids did not make me impatient, my kids revealed the impatience that was already there, right? That's, that's what's taking place here. It's revealing the, the own depravity of, of our own hearts. Now, certainly we see these types of things play out in, in smaller ways in our lives. So, for example, has anyone in here, you don't have to raise your hand or anything, but has anyone ever thought something, said something unkind, unwise, reckless, derogatory when someone ca- cuts you off in traffic, Right? <laughs> Yes, the, the, silent, the silent laughing, and yeah, yes. Has anyone thought something, said something unwise, unre- uh, uh, reckless, unkind, or derogatory out of anger towards someone you'd love? And, and you look back on that and you think, I, I, I didn't know that was in me. 
to think that, say that, act that way. Now, again, hear me correctly. Circumstances don't make us depraved. They reveal our depravity. Uh, Bob Thune says it like this. He says uh, that, that everyone is a saint in isolation, right? Everyone's a saint in isolation, but it's in community that, that our real weaknesses, our flaws, and our sins are exposed, right? And so, so this has to get us to think, okay, wh- how deep does the rabbit hole go in my own heart of depravity? The disciples here, this Passover dinner, they hear Jesus say to them, listen, one of you is going to betray me. And what's their response? Is it me? Do you hear the nervousness in their response? Really, really the, the, the Greek is them saying, surely it's not me. That's what they're saying. Surely I'm not going to do that. I mean, there's doubt even among a group of men who had spent the last three years following Jesus. So again, can we truly, really trust ourselves? And if you're trying to think, good grief, Matt, you're trying to get me to doubt myself. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Can you really truly trust yourself? Or is there enough evidence, even in your own life, your own background, your own past, to give you reasonable doubt to that question? Now, why is that? Well, because Jeremiah 17, 9 would say that the heart is deceitful above all things. Desperately sick, who can understand it? The heart, referring to the the inner person, who we are, right? The the locus of our thoughts and will and and, and affections and and our reasoning and thinking. Really, who we are, a disposition. Scripture would say it's deceitful above everything. Uh, It's desperately sick. You can't understand it. And so if we can come to a place of honesty with with ourselves, then we have to agree that we can't truly trust our own hearts. They are deceitful. Which should then, then cause us to ask, well then, if I can't trust myself, who can I trust? And that's why we need the text before us this morning. Who can we trust? The text points us to Christ. Disciples of Jesus must recognize our inability and his ability. Our faithlessness and his trustworthiness. Our helplessness and his deliverance. Our dependence and his sovereignty. That's what we see in Jesus all the way to the cross. He was in complete control. He was in complete control even of his betrayal by Judas uh, and his death that took place in just, that, in just a few short hours from where this text uh, takes us. And because of that, we can trust him. Since Jesus is the sovereign, risen, and reigning king who has given his life for our redemption, we can joyfully and confidently entrust our souls into his care. And so with that, that framework laid before us, let's jump into the text. Let's look at verse, verse 12. It says, On the first day of unleavened bread, when they had sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover. So Mark has been introducing these new units uh, of his gospel by shedding light on kind of where we are in the story in relation to the cross. All right, so, so here we are um, on, on the first day of unleavened bread. So this was, the, well, this was a day of preparation for the Passover meal that the Jewish people would, would celebrate and observe. And, and so, so with that, let's just get a picture of kind of where we are in the story as, as Jesus is heading toward the cross. Right, so you see on the screen above me, you see a, a, a timeline on, on that screen. So now we've been in this final week here since, listen, since October, okay? We've been in this final week since October when we preached chapter 11 and the triumphal entry that took place on Sunday, right? And so you can see that was on a Sunday. We'll celebrate that in, in just a few weeks, Palm Sunday. 
Now, just to refresh our memories from the past several months, on Monday then, Jesus entered the temple grounds and he drove out the money changers. On, on Tuesday, Jesus, after really upsetting the religious leaders on Monday by driving out the money changers on Tuesday, uh, Jesus took on really the entire religious establishment. So on Tuesday, he enters back into the temple grounds. His authority is challenged by the religious leaders, which then turns into them seeking to trip him up so they can find some way to accuse him, some way to destroy this guy. So the Pharisees and the Herodians team up. They try to get him to speak out against paying taxes to, to Rome. They want to try and get him as, uh, accuse him as an instigator of overthrowing Rome, and then he could be killed that way. Well, that doesn't work. So then the Sadducees try to trip him up about a question with the resurrection. He, he's then asked about what, what's the greatest commandment, right? Nothing is working for them to try and trip him up. And so then on that Tuesday, he pronounces judgment on, on these religious leaders. And then as he's leaving the temple grounds, after a long day with them of sparring back and forth, he then pronounces judgment on, on the temple itself. This is what we went through in Mark 13. He is leaving the temple grounds. It's magnificent, this beautiful temple. And he says all of this is going to come crumbling to the ground, which of course it did happen in 70 A.D., at the end of this Tuesday, they leave. He and his disciples leave the temple, and they walk up to uh, the, the Mount of Olives, and they over, they're overlooking even the temple itself, and he speaks then to them of the end of the age and his second coming. That was all taking place on Tuesday of that week, of this Passion Week. On Wednesday, this is where we were last week. A plot is formed between Judas and the religious leaders to arrest Jesus and to have him destroyed. So now they're just looking for their opportunity to make that happen. So here we are today, we're on, we're on Thursday. We're on Thursday, the day of, of preparation for the Passover meal. Now, now the Jewish day began um, at, at nightfall. Okay, so it's, it's a, maybe a little confusing, but this day of preparation actually would have started um, Wednesday at nightfall that would continue through Thursday nightfall. So that was a, a Jewish day. So that's where we are in the story. So that's where we are in verse 12, the day of preparation between Wednesday nightfall and Thursday nightfall. So the disciples here in verse 12 are asking Jesus, where do you want us to go? Where do we need to go to prepare to observe the Passover meal? So look at what he says in verse 13, 14, 15. He says, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, that's Jerusalem, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. So what we're about to see as we, as we go through the remainder of the text today, again, is God's sovereignty, Jesus' sovereignty over all the events leading up to even the crucifixion, even his betrayals, we'll see even in here. Jesus here, as we just heard, is in complete control of every event. And we're going to see this even more as we move through each section of the text today. And, and the purpose for Mark showing this is to encourage uh, his readers, to encourage disciples of Jesus that they can entrust their souls into his care. Remember, Mark's recipients of this gospel were Gentile believers that were living in Rome. So these believers were facing persecution, they were facing hardship, facing imprisonment, right? They needed to be reminded uh, of, of why. Why can we trust Jesus when it seems as though everything around us, our life is in freefall, when it seems as though everything is in chaos? Well, as Mark is showing us in Jesus through all of these events, 
That Christ, with Christ, in Christ, there is no chaos. He is in control of every single thing. And so here in verses 13 through 15, the disciples are needing help. They're coming to Jesus, asking him and needing help, where do we go? Where are we going to prepare this meal? And Jesus gives them detailed instructions. Detailed instructions, right? Go into the city, which is Jerusalem. That's where the Jewish people had to observe the Passover. It was in Jerusalem. Go into Jerusalem. You'll find a man carrying a jug of water. That was atypical. Men did not carry jugs of water. Typically, the women would. And so he's pointing out, you're going to find a man that's going to catch your eyes because this is not culturally uh, what you typically see. When you see him, follow him to where he goes and say to the master of that house, right, where's the room? The teacher needs to know where the room is. He's going to show you an upper room, a large upper room. It's going to be furnished and ready. There go prepare a meal, and we're going to then meet you in just a little bit. And what happens in verse 16? The disciples set out, went into the city, and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. So here we go, point one. Why can we entrust our souls into his care? It's because Jesus is the God who sees. He's the God who sees. Jesus was in complete control of every event leading up to the cross. The death of Jesus was no coincidence. The cross was a divine appointment that was put in motion, as the apostle Peter would say in his, in his letter, before the foundation of the world. Listen to 1 Peter 1 verse 20. It says, he, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. You see, Jesus not only knew the cross was his mission, but Jesus actually joyfully embraced that mission and embraced joyfully what his death would actually accomplish and bring about. We see this in, the, in, the, in, in Hebrews. Hebrews 12, verse 2 says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, it's important for us to understand this joy that was set before Jesus. What is it? What was this joy that was set before Jesus? Well, listen, it wasn't the act of crucifixion itself. The, the crucifixion of Christ was a horrific act of violence that caused Jesus to pray to his father, as we'll get to in, in, in just a little bit in the coming weeks, as he prays to his father, knowing the cross is coming, says, if there's any other way to accomplish what we're about to accomplish, let's do that. But Jesus knew there was no other way, and so he submitted to the will of the father. Listen, the cross was brutal. But the author of Hebrews says that Jesus endured the cross. Why? Because of the greater joy in what the cross would accomplish and bring about. And so what is that? What did the cross bring about that brought Jesus joy so that he would endure it? It's the glory of God. The glory of God in redeeming sinful humanity through his sacrifice. Right? The cross ultimately is about the glory of God. Right, The glory and what it would bring about in a gracious God loving sinful rebels and laying down his life. That was the joy laid before him. Jesus saw this clearly. He saw what his disciples could not see. In, in 1952, um, American swimmer Florence Chadwick, she uh, attempted to swim the 26-mile distance between the California coastline and Catalina Island. About 15 hours into the swim, 
uh, a dense fog set in where, where she could no longer see in, in front of her. She couldn't see around her. She couldn't see the team that was rowing even with her. So she swam in that dense fog for about another hour until finally she, she finally gave up. And so they pulled her into the boat. Once she got in the boat, she realized pretty shortly after that she was less than a mile away from the shore. But because she couldn't, she couldn't see it, she couldn't even see those around her. She felt totally alone and isolated. Her body was giving out. Her mind and body just gave, gave up. So how, how often do we find ourselves, quote-unquote, swimming in the fog? Doesn't that, doesn't that feel like life itself? I mean, I can look at my, my calendar for the week ahead, and I've got it laid out. Uh, I have a pretty <clears throat> good idea and understanding what my week is going to look like here this week, but I could be sitting here a, a week from now having experienced a completely different week than what I originally thought. I've, I have no control over that. I don't know what lies ahead with complete certainty. I can't predict or control the phone calls that I'll receive or the text messages that I'll get or the emails that will come in. I, can't, I can prepare as best I can, but, but control over my life is nothing but an illusion. It's nothing but an illusion. I don't think I'm alone in, in saying that. Isn't, that. isn't that the human experience? Like we are created finite beings that are not meant to live lives of independence but we are, we are created to live lives of dependence upon God. So, so rather than entrusting our souls into our own care where we can't even see with, or, or know with certainty how this day is going to end, we have no idea how this day, even right now, will end for us. Right? So if we don't know that, we can't see that, then we need to entrust our souls into Jesus' care because he is the God who sees and sees clearly. Secondly, we entrust our souls into his care because Jesus is the God who feels. He's the God who feels. Not only, let's walk through this in verse 17. Verse 17 is introducing the, the Passover meal to us, this last supper with Jesus, with, with Jesus and his disciples, this side of the cross. And so as, as preparations have been made for the meal, Jesus enters Jerusalem quietly to observe the meal with his disciples. And we'll talk about the elements of the meal itself during our, our third and final point. But it's, it's here that the meal is beginning to get underway. And, and, and that we see how Jesus here in these few verses, we see now, here's in the story how Jesus is going to be arrested. Here's how he's going to head to the cross. It's going to be through betrayal. And it's going to be through someone that was close to him that's going to turn on him, that's going to betray him. See, here we are introduced to this, this betrayer last week in verses 10 and 11, Judas Iscariot. Now during this meal, it says in verse 18 that they were, they were reclining at table. Now this was a a common way in which meals were, were eaten. And so get out of your mind like your dining room table and everybody sitting in chairs around a table. That's not how they would have observed a meal together in, in this culture. So th- this would have been a, a low table or a platform that were just maybe a few inches off of the floor. And, and there'd be cu- cushions surrounding the, the table in a, in a U shape. And so the disciples would, would, would recline on their left side. And they'd be propped up on their left elbow and their feet would be pointing outward. And then eating was done with the right hand. That's how, the, that's how meals were eaten. And, and so the person to your right who is laying down reclining next to you, they would have had their head close to your chest. And, and that would mean then that the person to your left, your head would be kind of in, in their chest. Now here's why, here's why this matters, why I mention that. See, Jesus says something truly shocking in verse 18. It, it says that as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me 
This was a statement that, that sent shock through that room. Each disciple, it says, one by one, and that would have included Judas, went to Jesus asking, surely not, not I. Jesus, is it, is it me? And then verse 20, Jesus narrows it down even further. He said to them, it's one of the 12. In fact, it's actually one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. So again, this is why the seating and, and how they would eat is significant. In, in John's gospel, we learn that John was most likely sitting to the, the right of Jesus. So John would have had his head in Jesus' chest. But Judas, we know, is, is the one who betrays Jesus. And Jesus says that his betrayer is one who is sharing a dish with me. That means most likely G- Judas was sitting in a place of honor to Jesus' left. In fact, not only was he sitting to his left, but but Jesus would have had his head in Judas's chest, knowing he was about to betray him. On this night, when Jesus knows that Judas, who'd been with him for the past three years, was going to betray him, still gave him a seat of honor at this table, still loved him, even to the end. I mean, who does that? <laughs> who does that? Jesus does. That, that is not my heart. I wish I could say I, w- I love my enemies like that. I do not. That is not my heart. It, it, you betray me, and you know where my, my, my heart goes? We're done. Done. You betray me, that's over. Go. But, but what do we see in the heart of Jesus here with this betrayer? A love, I, I just wrote, it's incomprehensible. It's incomprehensible. I cannot comprehend that kind of love, knowing what the cross was going to bring, knowing the pain, know the excruciating pain that the cross was going to bring, that he was going to bear the full wrath of God's justice, and it was through the hands of, of a guy who had been with him for three years who's turning him in. I, I just can't comprehend that kind of love. Jesus was going to experience here the pain of betrayal. He was going to experience and feel the sting of rejection, a suffering like no other, and yet still loved his enemy. That's important for us to understand. You see, Jesus makes a, a profound theological statement, verse 21, after Judas is identified. Jesus says, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, meaning it's been written, I'm going to the cross, that this will happen. But, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. See, Jesus here in verse 21 is claiming divinity, if, if, if you ever heard an argument that Jesus never claimed to be God, it's a, it's a flat-out lie. It's all throughout the Gospels. Jesus is claiming divinity here. That he's the prophesied son of man. He is the Messiah. He's the one of whom all Scripture points to. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Judas here is the betrayer. He's the one who turns on Jesus. And though even this was all part of God's sovereign plan, Judas is still here morally responsible for his actions. This is the tension that we find in Scripture, a God who is sovereign over all, and yet his sovereignty never cancels our moral responsibility, that we are held to account for our actions. See, Jesus here felt that the pain from Judas' decision, I have to keep coming back to it, and still loved him, still loved him. Why does this matter to us? Well, because even though Judas betrayed Jesus out of greed, right, by the morning, all of, this, all of the disciples would betray Jesus out of fear and weakness. They abandoned him. Peter denied they even knew him. So we need to hear this. You and I are Judas. You and I are Judas. Every act of sin is betrayal. 
It's us saying there's something better than Jesus. For Judas, it was 30 silver coins. For the disciples, it was their own lives. But what is it for us? Comfort, recognition, wealth, lust, vacations, reputation, right? How we live proclaims what we value most. If it's not Jesus, then it's something else. And when we do that, we betray him. Yet where was Judas on this Passover evening? Right next to Jesus with Jesus' head in his chest. Yes, our sin and betrayal is great, but God's grace is greater. That's what we hear, and that's what we see there. The disciples betrayed Jesus out of fear, and, and yet were welcomed back with open arms. This is the hope of the gospel. Betrayers can be forgiven through repentance and faith. Repentance is grief over our sin, a a turning away from our sin. And faith is a turning to Jesus who took that sin upon himself at the cross. See, the disciples repented and they found forgiveness. They found healing. They found acceptance. Judas carried his guilt and his shame upon himself all the way to his death, to the end. You see, since Jesus knows the pain of betrayal and rejection and, and loves us in spite of it, We can joyfully and confidently run to him in our weaknesses. To quote Hebrews 4, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can entrust our souls into his care because Jesus is the God who sees Jesus is also the God who feels. He knows what suffering is. He knows what pain and rejection is. And he knows that we have rejected him. He knows that we have sinned against him, and yet he still welcomes us, still accepts us through his sacrifice. That's why we can entrust our souls into his care. Lastly, we can entrust our souls into his care because Jesus is the God who gives. He's the God who gives. This is where we'll spend the remainder of our time here in verses 22 through 25. It walks us through this Passover meal and it introduces us to something new. So look at verses 22 through 25 again. It says, says, and and as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and, and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is remarkable here. Let's let's see what is happening here. Uh, The Passover meal was highly symbolic, highly symbolic. So uh, the meal itself would have consisted of roasted lamb, Uh, bitter herbs, unleavened bread, fruit sauce, and then four cups of wine. So during the meal, the the presider of the meal would get up at different points during the meal uh, with a glass of wine and explain the feast's meaning, right? So so again, remember, everything is pointing back to uh, Israel's deliverance from enslavement to Egypt, Right? So, so the, the, the roasted lamb is, is, again, is representing the fact that the, a lamb had to be sacrificed, blood put on the doorposts as, as God passed over during that final plague, which led to their redemption and their, their freedom. Right? The, the bitter herbs represent the bitterness of, of their, their enslavement. 
And so these cups, uh, as, as the meal would progress, would represent four different promises that were made to God's people um, of, for Israel's rescue from slavery in Egypt. And it's traced back to Exodus chapter 6. So, so look on the screen. I'll have these two verses up there. Exodus 6, 6 and 7. There's four promises that then the Passover meal would allude to back here. And so it says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great uh, acts of judgment. And I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God. And And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So the Passover meal would reflect on those promises there. Four promises. Rescue, freedom, redemption, and renewed relationship with God. Now, these are four promises that are important to understand and know as we go through how Jesus uh, changed the script in this final Passover. Those four promises, again, rescue, freedom, redemption, and renewed relationship with God. So this is what God promised Israel when he delivered them from the Egyptians. And so this Passover meal was a reminder to them of that final plague that God caused in Egypt when, when he passed over the homes uh, of those that had blood of the lamb on their doorposts. And those that did not, the, the, the Egyptians, the firstborn in all the land, died. And it was through that mighty act that God rescued his people from slavery. From that point forward, the, the Jewish people observed this Passover meal every year to remember God's deliverance. So Jesus here on this, this night here is the presider of the meal. And so throughout this meal, he would have gotten up and blessed the food to remind them of what God had done and to remind them of God's rescue. But, but Jesus begins to go off script here from what would have been a, a typical Jewish blessing during the Passover and begins to show how this meal, everything that they had been observing for centuries, actually was pointing to him and that he's the fulfillment of it all. So he, he says that he takes the bread in verse 22 and he breaks it. And instead of explaining here, like what would have typically been explained, how, how the bread represented the suffering of Israel when they were enslaved, the bread of their affliction, what's he say? He says, this is my body. He breaks it. What's he saying? He's saying, this is the bread of my affliction. This is the bread of my suffering. Jesus is going to bring the ultimate deliverance from slavery to sin and death. He's leading the ultimate exodus from bondage. So, so then he takes the cup of wine. This is most likely the, the third cup of that evening, which revolved around the promise of redemption. Uh, a, a typical explanation here would have been reminding those gathered uh, of God's redemption uh, of, from slavery through divine power over the Egyptians. But what's Jesus say here? He, he changes the script. He says in verse 24, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Jesus here is establishing a new covenant between God and his people. The old covenant was, was established between God and, and Israel at Mount Sinai. It was there that God gave them the law. God gave them the law that was written on, on stone tablets. And, and then he promises them blessing, right? Blessing if you'll obey this. They don't, right? They don't. And, th- and this old covenant was not a mistake by God. Oh, we tried one, let's try a different. That's not what's happening here. But, but it's revealing that the law was never meant to save us. The law only condemns us. 
And so, so the promise of a new covenant that God, uh, God makes is made in Jeremiah chapter 31. It's here in Jeremiah 31 that God promises through the prophet Jeremiah to write um, his law on their hearts, on his people's hearts, meaning right, this new covenant is going to be, I'm going to give them a new heart. A, they're going to become a new people to obey and to follow me. And he's promising in this new covenant this forgiveness that comes through a perfect and abiding sacrifice. So, so listen as I read this, 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 this telling of this new covenant in Jeremiah 31. God says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each, each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Right? So this is the new promise that God is making. And so where this Passover meal once reminded them of the redemption from slavery in Egypt, Jesus is now saying and establishing a new promise of redemption from sin and restoration with God through him and that he's the sacrifice that binds it all together. The, the promise God is making is to forgive our sins and to remember them no more. And Jesus' blood represented with that cup is a way of saying this is redemption. This new promise that, that God is making between you and, and him is binding because I'm going to be that final lamb, that final sacrifice. And this is where the meal ends. The meal ends. There's no fourth cup of wine. Why is that? Because of what Jesus says in verse 25. He says, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Remember the fourth promise that the fourth cup would have represented, a promise of renewed relationship with God. So Jesus is saying here, listen, the next time I drink that cup, it will be with you all in the kingdom of God, in the new heavens and the new earth where sin is fully eradicated and death is no more. Then and only then will we experience a full, renewed relationship with God as we were meant to. But for that to come about, for that to come about, that fourth and final cup, Jesus must first drink from the cup of God's wrath for man's sin. That's what he did. Years ago, there was a, a story in, National Geographic of a, of a forest fire that ripped through Yellowstone National Park. Uh, as the, after the fire was, was, was extinguished and uh, forest rangers began to hike up a mountain to survey the damage, as they were walking up a mountain, one of the rangers found a, a bird which, which was just burnt to a crisp. There's nothing left of it. It was a carbonized, petrified shell that was just covered in, in ashes. And it was huddled at the, at the base of a tree, and, and so the rangers wondered, like, why did, not, why did this bird fly away? Like, like, somewhat sickened even by the sight of what he saw, the ranger wondered, again, like, what, what was going on? Like, why didn't he fly to safety? Why didn't she fly to safety? Well, the ranger knocked the bird over and discovered underneath this bird were three tiny chicks, which scurried out from under their dead mother's wings. This mama bird remained steadfast through the fire, giving her life so that her babies could live. In Luke 13... Jesus looks out over the people of Israel 
and says how he longed to gather them up like a hen would gather her chicks. Jesus did indeed gather his children under his wings as he went to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus endured the wrath of God's holy justice. Our call then is to take Jesus in. Right? He breaks bread and he says, take. Right? This is my body. He takes a cup and says, drink. This is my blood. You see, Jesus gave of himself, but we must receive and take Jesus in if we are going to be redeemed and set free. Jesus is the God who sees. He's the God who feels. He's the God who gives. Since this is true, and it is, we can confidently entrust our souls into his care. This is the character of God, is it not? He is a God who cares deeply, a God who loves generously, that there's no pain or sorrow or suffering that we experience and feel that Jesus did not experience or feel himself or carry himself. He knows what it feels like to be rejected. He knows what it feels like to suffer. He knows what it feels like to be betrayed. He calls on his disciples to come trust him, to follow him, to submit to him as Lord and King who gave his life and then gives us grace needed to do just that. To submit to Christ as King is good. To entrust our souls into his care is good and right and life-giving. It was Jesus himself who said, Come to me. Come to me all who labor and and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find, hear the promise, you will find rest for your souls. Do you yearn for rest, for peace, and for hope? Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart. He is full of grace and mercy, and for those who trust in him, they're promised rest for their souls. And how is that possible? It's because Jesus gave of himself to redeem us to himself. Jesus' body was broken so that our lives could be restored. Jesus' blood was poured out so that we would no longer carry upon ourselves the condemnation for our sins. Jesus bore the wrath of God. Jesus drank every last drop from the cup of God's justice for mankind's sin. His sacrifice is what has brought us peace. This rest for our souls is received through faith. Faith in Christ alone. This is the hope of the gospel. For those who have not believed this truth, Jesus still today says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Meaning turn from your sin, repent and turn in faith to a God who cares, a God who saves, a God who gives. Brothers and sisters, we continually rest in this hope of the gospel. We never outgrow this truth. We continually rest in Christ's finished work on the cross and we long for the day when he returns to feast again with his bride in a renewed and restored creation where the sting of death is gone, where the pain uh, is no more, where we will forever be in the presence of Christ. And so until that day, we remember through communion, his life, his death, his resurrection.